Hello, friends, and welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and on today's episode, we will be talking about pluralism, coexistence, one way or many ways. That's right, this energetic engagement with diversity in this robust, zesty Western world that we live in. Can you still have faith? Can you have a religious conviction and still sit in a room with other people who are vastly different from you? What does that mean? Are you superior? Are you inferior? All that and more with friends from across the religious theological spectrum, from evangelical, reformed, all the way to agnostic atheist. Fun times. Before we get into the show today, let me turn your attention to hashtag all things brew theology. Now, if you haven't done so already, please make sure and like us on the Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, which is underscore, by the way, brew underscore theology. The rest are at brew theology. Also, the website is about to come into existence at www.brewtheology.org. If you'd like to get some sweet swag, there is a new campaign around right now at teespring.com slash brewtheology. Get you some good stuff. Now, we have got other things coming up. We have interviews with Dr. Miguel de la Torre. We have an episode coming up where we're going to be talking to a Jewish rabbi about mysticism, meditation, and all things rabbinical. Some of my favorite stuff right there. If you're in the Denver area, please come and check us out on Meetup at Denver Pub Theology. We would love to have you on a Thursday night where we go to a new brewery from 8 to 10 p.m. People across the spectrum and hash out some zesty, brutastic, hopalicious good stuff. Always respectful, always loving, and always diverse. Now, I want to give a shout-out right now to uh, the brewery Black project. Right now, I am drinking the Voodoo. It's it's phenomenal. This is a wild, spontaneous ale. Uh, the owners are James and Sarah Howitt, and they are in the Platte Park neighborhood here off of Broadway in South Louisiana. These bombers do not come cheap, but for good reason. This is a $25 bomber that Sarah gave me the other day. These guys know how to brew some good stuff. So if you are in the Denver area and you are coming to GABF, or you're just in Denver because you love the Mile High City, go to this place. These guys know how to do something that other places are, are you know, they're, they're good at, but James has found this artistic, very uh, unique way of brewing. Let me just read this from their mission right here. It says that all of our beers are fermented with microbes captured from the local environment via our cool ship. We believe this creates a beer that is unrivaled in complexity. Our beers are intended to have a sense of place. No matter how hard one tried, our beer could not be replicated outside of our brewery. In fact, our microbe cultures are purposefully allowed to evolve from batch to batch, creating variations and interesting twists from different releases of the same beer. Now, if I lost you at Microbe, it's okay. I'm telling you, go check it out. They're off of South Broadway here in Denver. Delicious stuff. Love ya, Black Project. Now, enjoy the episode. And don't forget, my friends, share the brew. Okay, friends, welcome tonight. We're uh, going to be talking about pluralism before we get into the topic. Do some intros around the table here. My name is Ryan. I grew up Southern Baptist Evangelical. 18 years ago, I stopped being Baptist. Now I am an evolving Anabaptist method Jucostal. We'll see what that uh, that will be in a year from now. But right now, I love Jesus. So I am drinking tonight the Voodoo, phenomenal drink from Black Project. Cool. 
I'm Dan Rosado. I was born in Puerto Rico, mostly raised in the South as a charismatic evangelical. Then in college, I dabbled with Calvinism, and I will say it again, is always a mistake. Ouch. And <laughs> as of today, I'm heavily influenced by, by process philosophy, still consider myself a Christian, and uh, Eastern religion, mostly Buddhism as well. And I'm drinking the other half of the, what is it, Black Voodoo? Black Project Voodoo. Black Project Voodoo. Dangerous. <laughs> My name's Steve, and uh, I grew up in various evangelical, moderate evangelical churches. Uh, worked for Young Life for a while, worked in parachurch ministries for, uh, with, with youth, uh, worked on staff as a pastor, and uh, haven't been to church in, I don't know, nine years or something like that. Uh, still identify culturally as a Christian, figuring out what that means religiously to me. And uh, also, like Dan, influenced by process thought and how that um, shift in uh, philosophy starts helping me see the world and Christianity differently. And what are you drinking? I'm drinking a mercenary oh. because it was on sale. <laughs> it works. A damn good drink. It is. And that's from Odell? Correct. Yeah. Uh, my name is Janelle. I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene in the heart of the Midwest, so quite conservative, and uh, pursued ministry for many, many years. And we moved to Colorado four years ago and uh, find myself now with the label of progressive. Happy to have that. Um, Christian, and we have a house church in our home where we talk about the Bible and how do we deal with that when our views change from what we were raised in. Um, and that my own journey is continuing presently. So um, I'm, we're not sure what I'm drinking, but it's called the Best Darn Black Cherry in a cola. So it's, it's brewed, but we're not really sure if it's a beer or something else. But it's very good. <laughs> uh, my name is uh, John. I grew up Southern Baptist. Uh, over the years, I started uh, losing that, shifted to uh, being agnostic. And uh, now I am an atheist. Uh, pretty, pretty solid in that belief at the time. Um, don't really know how that will change. Uh, but these things are fun. And uh, tonight I'm drinking uh, Tommyknocker Nut Brown Ale. Sweet. Okay, so let's jump right into the topic. Dan, you ready? Dan wrote the notes, by the way. Sure. And I have to give credit to, I mean, I, I say it in, in this first paragraph, but I have to give credit to Diana L. Eck at Harvard. So we'll read you some of her thoughts on pluralism. She wrote four guiding principles for pluralism. Diversity is a given in our postmodern age, but pluralism is a stance we can adopt. There are many views on what pluralism means and what it looks like in practice, but for the purpose of our discussion today, let us be guided by the following points from the Pluralism Project at Harvard. Credit to Diana L. Eck. First, pluralism is not diversity alone, but the energetic engagement with diversity. Diversity can and has meant the creation of religious ghettos. A ghetto is a part of a city or town where Jews lived, segregated from others. The name comes from the foundry area in Venus, where Jews were forced to live in 1526 and came to be used for all such areas of segregation often forcible segregation with little traffic between or among them. Today, 
Religious diversity is a given, but pluralism is not a given. It's an achievement. Mere diversity without real encounter and relationship will yield increasing tensions in our societies. And second, uh, pluralism is not just tolerance, but the act of seeking of understanding across lines of difference. Tolerance is a necessary public virtue, but it does not require Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Jews, and ardent secularists to know anything about one another. Tolerance is too thin a foundation for a world of religious difference and proximity. It does nothing to remove our ignorance of one another and leaves in place the stereotype. Stereotyping is the assumption of generalized characteristics to a whole group of people, thus describing individuals by the characterization. Usually a caricature of the whole, the half-truth, the fears, the underlying patterns of division and violence in the world in which we live today, our ignorance of one another will be increasingly costly. Third, pluralism is not relativism, but the encounter of commitments. The new paradigm of pluralism does not require us to leave our identities and our commitments behind, for pluralism is the encounter of commitments. It means holding our deepest differences, even our religious differences, not in isolation, but in relationship to one another. Fourth, pluralism is based on dialogue. The language of pluralism is that of dialogue and encounter, give and take, criticism and self-criticism. Dialogue means both speaking and listening, and that the process reveals both common understandings and real differences. Dialogue does not mean everyone at the table will agree with one another. Pluralism involves the commitment to being at the table with one's commitments. So, we're already at the table with beer. What, you want to jump in? Dan? Sure. So, the first question is, how do you view pluralism as defined above today? Basically, what do you think about it? Um, within your own tradition, how have you related to those differing views? And remember, I, I use tradition here loosely. It could be your upbringing, whether it was religious or not. Just bring everything that you are to the table. Well, I think pluralism's a really exciting thing because it means that uh, we can do something that is not being done a lot in our culture, and that's to come to the table with different perspectives and different uh, things that are important to us and be able to sit together and talk and uh, figure out how to do life together. And that's one of the things I love. I uh, come out of a situation where my very first seminary class was on pluralism, and it was led by a chaplain. And so that undergirded most of my learning, even in a conservative tradition, because he had put that uh, in there, in, inside my thought process and my filters. And one of the things he always said is really exactly what she says here in that last sentence. It involves our commitment to being at the table with our commitments. And so for me, as a Christian, that's always meant that I can bring Jesus to the table with me. I don't have to leave him behind. It does mean that I have to be open to other opinions, but that he gets to come with me and sit next to me. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because people have asked me, and, and I understand this question is, when we do this pub theology gathering on a weekly basis, there are those who ask, well, when does Jesus come up? I've had people ask me that. And mm -hmm. like you said, well, if there are Christians there, then Jesus is always there. He's always there. Yeah. I think for me, growing up, a lot of these... Uh, distinctions kind of got squashed together. So pluralism and relativism was assumed to be kind of the same amorphic thing. Um, and it, it, it's been helpful thinking about them as distinctions so that there's uh, how you understand one as being different from the other and how actually 
relativism doesn't necessitate pluralism or right. vice versa. So that makes a big difference. Well, and definitely in some of our backgrounds, um, the fear of relativism and tolerance um, was kind of bundled in with this. And so it, it really takes a lot of effort to like separate those things back out, that they're not the same thing and they're nothing to be afraid of, like that we can be pluralistic and hold our view and still be okay. I think that it's, uh, I have a little bit of a different view. I think that pluralism requires either the sacrifice of some of your own convictions or the sacrifice of how you view others uh, and their convictions. Um, I, I don't see how you could really fully embrace pluralism and then evangelize to someone else. I'm, I'm not sure that's, that's something that can be done. But I do think that pluralism is a nice goal to have and it allows for uh, unity and everyone to get along a bit better. I'm just not sure that it's it's uh, a really uh, practical ideology outside of that. So that's that's a really good point, and we'll if we can hold our opinions, we'll we'll hash that out in in the third question. We can explore that a little more if you guys are willing to wait a little bit. But, <laughs> um, for me and and my upbringing, I remember I think I grew up pretty. I wouldn't say sheltered, but with the thinking that. Anything beyond my specific Christian tradition was inferior, um, as, as best as I can put it right now. Um, I remember it wasn't until the end of high school, maybe, that I entertained the idea um, that Catholics are Christians, <laughs> which is kind of funny, but that's how I grew up. Mm -hmm. um, my grandparents were Catholic, my parents were Protestant, and there was always that, that weird... Um, division, if you will, even within my own family. So the second question is says, do you view your tradition or views as superior, equal, or inferior? Is this true to you in some respects or in all respects? Do you believe that all paths lead to the same mountain peak? Many paths of different peaks. Do the paths ever cross? Take this analogy as far as it as it is helpful. Yeah, so Be there creative. are a lot of questions in that yeah. question. So starting with the first one, yes, I think that everybody here would say that their their view, whether it was their view 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or today, it is superior. We just wouldn't use that language. If you did, you'd be a jackass, you know. <laughs> but, but yeah, so if you have like a, a superior view than, than I do, I mean, then wouldn't I want to then have your view if it's superior? So in a way, we all have superior views. Yeah, how is it your view if it's not something that you view as superior? Are you going to take a view that you think is weaker than another one? You're going to take what you think is the best one, period. But I think it's what we do with that that becomes um, critical to how we live out our lives. Um, when we view that superior thing as something that we must indoctrinate others with, we walk away from this table. But I do think that we can hold to our view and the thing that has the most meaning to us. We all have a different upbringing a different background and so we've gotten to whatever our view is through that whole process and then it's what we do with it that matters uh, whether and impounding that into other people is not generally the best thing to do in my opinion now so is everybody in a sense evangelistic i thought we were supposed to wait on that question uh, Dan, see, it's, it's already there. It's already there. Can we just go there right now? Let's, yeah, let's just roll with it. We don't have to stick to the guide, to the questions. We can, 
It's organic, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you're not willing to evangelize for your belief, then what, what kind of belief are you holding? It's either not well thought out enough or you're not confident enough in it. It doesn't mean that you need to be without tact whenever you're talking to people or, you know, not polite, but it does mean that you you are going to think that what you, you view as superior and you're going to try to, to win that argument when it comes up because hopefully you've already had those arguments and you're going to really want to, to prove that you're right in that situation. Even if you back off, you know, in the conversation, you're going to leave it thinking the same thing. But how, is there a difference between feeling superior and then feel like I really need Stephen to be whatever I am today? I, I don't, I can still be very passionate about what I think is true in this season. I, I don't need Stephen or Dan or any of you to, to be on my side. It would be fun in some way. So it's like, you know, my wife doesn't like seafood and I love her, but I always tell her, man, it'd be more fun if you did, then we could split like seafood platters. Is that, you know what I'm saying? But I don't need her to like seafood to go on a date and have a good time. Okay, so do you think that the world would be a better place if everyone had your view? Or do you think that... No. So why are the weaknesses in your views then? Because it seems like it would require something lacking in your view to want others to have other views. I will not speak of my own <laughs> weaknesses and lacking abilities. In my <laughs> so that, that's, that's actually why I put as the second part of the question, is this true to you in some respects or in all respects? So I still consider myself a Christian which by using that label, I find a lot of value in the Christian tradition, or at least some aspects of it. But I also recognize that there's things that Buddhism speaks to that Christianity doesn't, or not as well. Maybe it does here and there. And that's what I find exciting about pluralism, is that I can be enriched, just my life in general can be enriched by different points of views and religions. Well, I think we see that actively in some kind of non-religious spaces in our culture. For instance, yoga has become pretty well practiced all around the United States, and that isn't necessarily a spiritual commitment, but it's something that was developed under the umbrella of, of one tradition um, and that has been adopted. And then I'm also presently using Ayurvedic medicine to help treat my migraines, where where traditional Western practices have failed, and this is something that seems to actually be helping. And so it doesn't mean that I'm going to become Hindu, but there's definitely some wisdom here that comes out of that tradition that matters. And I think that's where, when we get into, would we want everyone to have our view, I think that we're missing the point that there are these different views that have evolved around our globe that are there, and so... To me, it seems a much better plan to kind of try to work together and build those bridges than to try to enforce culture on a bunch of people that have no idea what what I may be talking about as a Christian. I don't understand Hinduism. I I have a Buddhist friend, but I don't understand Buddhism at its heart. And so why do we have to, like, enforce that change on them if we can find ways to work together? Yeah, and I think once we get to a point where we realize every religion, every person within that religion has appropriated and once you've studied history enough you realize this so that's okay so what are the good um what's the bad what's the ugly and i i think a, a religions that even the, the jewish i'm not jewish but the the jewish tradition in america in the west has had to learn to adapt and they're not afraid to say yeah uh, there's been some appropriations and some evolution a bit here and there but christians should be willing to say the same thing and Unfortunately, in our heritage growing up, I can't speak to yours, but if we all grew up very similar, there was a dismissal of that we appropriated anything. Mm -hmm. That it was like, this is the truth, and it's always been this way. 
Yeah. Like, that's okay to say, no, it's, it's, it's changed over the years. Well, it even went so far, I come from a very mission-minded tradition, and so we often criticized the Catholics who often allowed syncretism and adopted beliefs of the places where they were working and how evil that was. Um, but then, at the same time, now my parents live right near a place in New Mexico where they had Navajo schools, and they forced those children to abandon everything that they knew and to dress like whites and to look like whites. And um, I don't think that's a productive way to spread anything. I think that if you're not... So, so the question, just to reiterate, is... Uh, is this true to you in some respects or in all respects for that second part there? And I think that if it's not true to you in all respects and what you're doing is you're finding places where your beliefs that you've already had overlap with other beliefs and you're saying, well, these can all kind of work together in this one way, but it's still under the guise of your single belief. So I, I don't, there's, there's the different religions, the different beliefs, you know, philosophies, they're not completely detached from one another. There's a lot of overlap between them, and we can embrace those things, and we need to if we're going to be pragmatic about it. But I don't think that that's, that's the same thing. I think that goes back to still believing that your views that you already had, maybe they you know evolve over time, but your views are superior, and that's what you seek out is those differences. And to highlight that, uh, we could talk about how we all have lines in the sand where we're not willing to embrace certain things. Like, we're not going to embrace child marriage, I hope, anyways, right? <laughs> There's a number of things like that that we would all say no and be done with it. Yeah. But I think that's part of understanding how she creates these distinctions in what pluralism is and isn't. So I think pluralism allows for a space to hold those convictions, and she uses the, uh, the term commitment, I think, more so than conviction, but um, to be able to at least allow people, right, use the example of child marriage, allow those people at the table rather than keeping them at distance. And I think at the heart of pluralism, at least the way that I see it, that, that makes a big difference difference. The relativism would say it's all, it's all the same value system, you know, whether you believe in, you know, child marriage or child sacrifice or whatever it is that, that strongly contradicts my viewpoint. Um, pluralism would say that I think all of those really are at, at the same value level. Um, but I think what pluralism gets to is saying, I'm at least going to allow you at the table. I'm going to treat you as a person who holds conviction. And, I, and to me, that's a strong foundation in pluralism, is allowing for people to maintain their convictions. And I, I think this is why I see evangelism, which is really a loaded term, and it's mm -hmm. one that I cringe at a lot just because of the background that I come from. But to me, I think I'm, I'm growing into a space where I'm much more comfortable with it. And to use a scriptural... Uh, reference um there's this the, the verse that talks about always be ready to give an account for the hope that you have and growing up to me that was always taught as like this is you should be able to give you know the romans road and give all of these reasons for why everyone else should be a christian and i i, I don't remember ever hearing about that word hope so to me that idea of what what do i have hope in in my belief system that i might want to offer to someone else not to say that you should believe in the same way that I do, but to say, I've found hope in this. If this is helpful to you, consider it. 
which I think is a very different way of evangelism than the way that I grew up in, which was, my way is superior. I'm hoping that you learn how wrong you are and you should come on my team. Instead of saying, this is why, this is why I believe it. And I, you know, so come along with me. Which I think the emphasis there is really different. I think that's a very, I mean, we see that reflected in Christ where um, he, when he talks to people about whether or not you want to join me, it's with open hands that say, please, you may come if you want to, come if you want to. And I think a lot of times, like traditional Christian evangelism has been, you're out there and I'm in here and so I'll open the gate for you and you can come in and then we'll shut the gate. And that's a very different posture um, of how to interact with people than to just offer the open hand and say, come with me. Um. Okay, I would I would say that that's that's I I agree with that approach first of all, but I I would label it differently. Uh, I would say that that's more of an ethical approach, and that's more of finding those overlapping things where we can use what we have in common as a strength, as opposed to focusing on what's different between us. But it doesn't address exactly why you would have certain theological beliefs, what your religion would be, what your philosophy in that realm would be, because whenever you make that kind of choice. You are saying, this is what I want, these other things are not. And you might take in bits and pieces from this and that, because there's a lot that you can get from everything. But you're still making a choice and you're separating it. I guess I don't see that as problematic. Mm -hmm. Same. To me, I, I don't... I think that's... I think that's part of understanding ourselves, is being able to create some, some framework... And so, I don't know how great that analogy would, would carry on, but I think there is a point where we're framing out structure to ourselves. There are things that we need rigid in order to create a framework. It doesn't mean that we're always staying with those things. I think all of us, and I think this is one thing that attracts a lot of people to Denver Pop Theology, is that we all are restructuring and feeling feeling either the effects or the lure to restructure that framework into something that is more authentic to ourselves. But I think that has to be there. Otherwise, I think that shifts into that relativism space of avoiding commitment. And, and I, I mean, I, I don't know. There may be some people that are strong into relativism that, wouldn't, that would have an issue with the way that I'm defining it. But I think that moving into it doesn't, you know, not holding commitment or val or, um, or uh, yeah, commitment or conviction. I, I I don't think that's pluralism. I think those have to be there. Okay, and I I can I can see the reasoning behind that for sure. What I would what I would ask then is what's the value in saying that I'm, you know, if I if I were to say I'm a follower of Jesus, why is is that just relative to my life, my situation, the way that I've grown up, where I grew up? Is there something else to that? Is is it purely just chance and and just I'm just a product of my past in that relationship? Uh, not to say that that's not valuable, definitely not. Um, but just to say that you're still making a call there, and while you still need that rigidity, like you said, to to have a stronger foundation and to build up your the rest of your beliefs, and not to say that that can't shift and migrate over time, but what's 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 the value in picking a specific deity at that point what why why are why aren't we all just purely spiritual then and trying to grow off of each other in, in a very abstract and open way 
I think the first thing is to answer the first part of that is yes, we are a product of our culture. We are a product of how we were raised and what church we were brought up in and what our parents thought and how that influenced us and what our youth leaders taught us and how many times we went to camp. All of those things form that. And I think the reason that a lot of us need that framework is is because when I, I work with people that are coming out of these traditions and they start to um, outgrow that or realize that those things aren't good, they need they need someone to walk with them to reformulate that and reconnect it. And for some people, that does mean letting go of God completely. But for a lot of people, it means how do I how do I reframe this in a way that now makes sense with the way I see the world? And I I think it's asking a lot actually for to expect people to at 17 or 18 or 21 or 22 when they realize things aren't working to just walk away. And I, and some people will, and a lot of people do. We have a lot of duns in this country that uh, have a faith commitment. They want to be part of that, but they don't know how to do that anymore. So that's definitely a realistic option. But I think for a lot of people, you do need that framework to make sense of the world. And I think that's okay. Yeah, I think that um, it's not bad. And I wasn't trying to communicate that that sort of uh, history or anything like that is bad. But what I would say is that it's uh, from what I what I got from that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's an artifact of your past. There's no intrinsic merit in it. There's no necessary uh, truthfulness in it. It's more of um, what you need in a relative term in order to continue in the best way that you you can. Uh, I, so I just finished reading um, Mike Maharg, Science Mike's book. Uh, finding God in the Waves. And what he would say, I think, from that perspective, looking at the neurology and the brain science, is that actually that stuff, because it is so deeply embedded in us, um, that we actually still do need that framework. And that framework is disrupted when everything falls apart. And to, in order to uh, experience some of those things and feel that sense of belonging in place, that our brains actually do need that framework. And that is, it isn't just an artifact, it's it's how our brains have been built to process spirituality. And so for many people, there isn't another spirituality. It's tied into what has that rooted experience been? Um, and, and he doesn't, he wouldn't go as far to say, well, does that mean God is real or not? That's not really the point of what he's discussing, but it is that in our humanity, that is how we experience it, and that is what affects how we have a spirituality. Now let's go back to this analogy, because this has been used time and again throughout our childhood and adulthood as well. The mountain, the peak, the paths, you know, do all paths lead to the same mountain peak? I know this analogy is, can be broken down and whatnot, but it's, it's, it's the one that we use in society. So. What do y'all think about this regarding what is what is the path uh, when you're walking that path and what is what's the goal? Yeah, I'm really curious what you guys think because where some of you disagree on other points, you might agree in this question of the mountain and the peaks and the paths. Clearly, there are different paths. Yeah, I like start with the path. Oh, I disagree that clearly there's different paths. First of all. I would think that, that the, uh, we're making a big assumption by saying that there's peaks to begin with and that there's a goal in the end. Um, I, I would say that uh, we can make up our own goal, uh, but, the, but the, the idea that there's a peak there, 
uh, implies that there's some underlying truth that's going to be there no matter what and that we have nothing to do with its creation. And I would uh, disagree with that. I think that we can still, again, I'll kind of try to find a way for us to go down you know, a path that allows us, you know, the, uh, some sort of a, uh, that lets us get along better, lets us achieve more, lets us, uh, be more creative, everything positive, yada, yada, but I think that we're, we're making that ourselves. I don't think that there's the Judaistic path and the Christian path and the Muslim path or any of these other things or the atheist path. I think that that all of those labels there are are a way that we're finding some sort of higher purpose beyond what we're building for ourselves. Yeah, and I think that everybody that you just labeled would totally disagree with you. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I kind of want to push back a little bit, or not push back, but better understand your viewpoint. Okay. So you would... I'll, I'll stop at each phase and make sure that you still agree. Fair. Would you agree that we make our own mountains and our own paths? Yes. Yes, I would. Is it still the same mountain? No. So we create our own mountains, many mountains, many paths of different mountains. And I'd, I'd elaborate and say that, or we don't create a mountain. We create anything at all. A valley. Yeah, or, yeah, a canyon, whatever. But I like <laughs> a nice nature trail. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you like it. That's exactly. <laughs> it's just, it's just what's, what I'm used to. It's what I was raised with, the mountain, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So you get to the top, and you look above, there's clouds, and you're like, oh, he's on his mountain, but you're all up in the clouds. So. All right, it's nice and equal in that setting, right? <laughs> so, uh, I'm kind of curious. I, I want to better understand your viewpoints. It's, it's the most different in the table today. And um, would you say that your current view has a goal, even if it's a very survival, could be it, or right. happiness, or whatever? Right, right. So um, the idea that you create your own mountain can, you know, without, without anything sort of guiding you or any sort of ultimate truth that is, or ultimate mountain, you know, that maybe everyone has a different path up or whatever, uh, that, I think that can be kind of daunting and it borders on nihilism a bit. Uh, I don't like that philosophy, probably uh, because I'm not built to like that philosophy biologically. You know, I have different chemicals kicking around in my head that makes that unpleasant. So I would say that uh, you, you definitely create what you want to. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's good or bad or anything like that. It's just whatever you're making it. And it's a product of your experiences, who you are, what you are, and what being, um, you know, you, you, how you were raised, whether you, like we talked earlier about um, being raised with a certain uh, religion and that having an imprint essentially in your life just kind of for, from then on. Not that it doesn't in mine as well, it definitely does. Uh, you can't escape that in my opinion. But I think that you, you create exactly what you want. And that doesn't mean that it's good or good for you. But I think that you create it, whatever that is. Any thoughts? I want to go back to you you referenced sort of the the way you're kind of made up. And I, I wonder if part of this comes into those distinctions like I mean there are definitely a lot of people who 
Like my wife is one of them, who I, maybe I shouldn't mention. You know, I haven't had permission to bring her up. <laughs> I know of a guy who has a wife. She won't listen to this anyway. <laughs> right? She would not find any enjoyment in pub theology study. Mm-hmm. Right? So just because of the way that she's made up, the way that she wants to interact with people or not interact with people, all of those things come into play. Um, probably, or there probably has been studies that look at you know, the way that certain personalities and, and uh, groups of people associate with certain identifications. And I think, I, I kind of fear that that's a little bit reductionistic to say that all of these people, right? I'm in Myers-Briggs ENFP, and I think I'm a, I, an Enneagram 2 wing 3, which really surprised me because I thought it was different. Anyway, I thought you were a 6. I know, so did I. And, you know, I took another quiz. I'll have to do that again. But maybe... Um, a lot of the, the, the spaces that I'm moving into are all influenced by those things. And that doesn't make those distinctions wrong or right necessarily. Uh, but I think my conviction, my understanding myself in those places and fidelity to myself, fidelity to those beliefs, I think is really a valuable space in it. And so, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily pertain to the mountain analogy, but I think it comes into play where you know, that there, maybe there is no mountain, and that may be one group, and the other group, you know, there's another group saying, oh, look, there's those people heading up the path that says that there's no mountain, right? <laughs> because we can always, we're always trying to understand and identify people in some sort of category, and we use any kind of way that we can do that to be able to relate and understand other people. So to be able to say, those are the people that believe there's a mountain there, those are the people that believe there is no mountain, is in some ways, I think, a way for us to understand and, and be able to compartmentalize enough so that we can have some relatedness to it. But I think personality does influence this because I think there are some people that when their tradition and their belief system collapses, they have to replace it with something. Like, they just have to. And there are other people I know that they could just go on living and never think about it again, and they'd be fine with that, and it wouldn't phase them. And so I think that that is a piece that that is absolutely part of this discussion of, you know, just who we are and what our makeup is and where our own kind of um, preferences lie in terms of knowledge and what we believe and how we wrestle with that. See, I, s- I slightly disagree with one piece okay. that you said, and it's that there are people that can just move on, and I think everyone replaces it in different ways. Probably, yeah. Probably. It can be something as simple as, now I work out all the time. Mm-hmm. Or... <laughs> Hike every weekend. Yeah, it could be something that's health. It doesn't have to be unhealthy. It can be healthy, but I feel like for a lot of people a new thing becomes the obsession or the the thing that provides purpose. Um, whether that's good or not is up for debate, <laughs> right? But well, maybe that's that, that core piece of how we identify purpose. And maybe purpose is a loaded, for a lot of us that grew up in religious context, purpose is like a super loaded word. So even the rejection of that word has some sort of divine intent. Um, but I think... You know, we were talking about how how much it matters, this pluralism concept. 
I know some people that may be more willing to give up religion before they give up their sports team. Oh, yeah. Right? And so pluralism is not unique to... Quit looking at me. <laughs> hey, if it fits. Uh, no, but I mean, I think pluralism is, you know, we're kind of primarily talking about it in a religious context, but this is, I think in some ways, an understanding that this is the world in which we live. Part of a postmodern society is an understanding of pluralism. And if we were not living in a postmodern society, this question of what about pluralism, you know, would, would be the one that we would be talking hushed only with the most mm -hmm. safest of people in our lives, because it would not be something that we, you know, feel comfortable talking about. So given our situatedness, I think it does allow us that space to talk about it. And it's across all, all things. It's not just a pluralistic religious identity. It's a pluralistic car choice, it's a, you know, sports team, beer choice, non-beer choice, politic. All of those come into play. Yeah, so to change gears a bit, but uh, two experiences I had yesterday... One was uh, with a person of a different religious tribe and affiliation. It was a great conversation. And we were talking about God and who is God and how is God and what is God. Great, great discussion. I mean, I could have talked all day with this person. And this individual said that he's, like, less interested in who God is as far as, like, a name. Even, even the name God and even the, like, the... You know, as Christians, we would say Yahweh or Jewish Yod Hey Vav Hey, whatever. It's that even that that holiest of names. Like, there's no really a name for that. Like, people have been confused for years about that. But this person said, "I'm more interested in that connection. You can call it divine. You can call it God. So it's less about like the hike, less about the Red Rocks concert, less about the football game, but it's about the experience you have within that. So right now, we're drinking beer and having this discussion." So it's not even about this discussion or the beer, but it's about this connection that we're having. And that was, that was beautiful because then, of course, God, that, that's another topic for another day, becomes less of this anthrop anthropomorphic thing and more of this, this energy, this force, this, and I don't know where you would go with this. This is a rabbit trail. But, th but so you have somebody who's very, very much rooted in their faith, in their tradition, very religious, and at the same time, totally unconventional when it comes to, I mean, that sounds very postmodern, very pluralistic and embracing, but yet still rooted in their commitments. The other experience was I got an Uber driver to uh, Red Rocks and I got evangelized on the way there. It was awesome. I mean, it was old school. <laughs> no, really, it's happened. Chick track and everything? It, no, uh, you know, he had to drive, but I, I felt like I paid attention to the road because he kept looking back. Oh, God. And he asked if me, if I'm going to crash this car, do you know where you're going to go tonight? tonight. <laughs> no, but so this, so he asked me, he said, so what do you do? And I said, well, here's, here's what we're doing with pop theology and brew theology. And, and he goes, well, so, oh, so you're a Christian. I said, yeah. He goes, well, who is Jesus to you? And I, I, I knew it was coming because I used to really live in that, in that world. And so I gave him an answer that he probably didn't like so much. I, I just said, Jesus is my rabbi. Well, what do you mean by that? So then I kind of went on a bit. Well, so he said, well, I think what you're doing is great, because uh, clearly we're around people of faith, non-faith, Buddhist, agnostic, every Christian under the sun comes to this <laughs> pub gathering. He goes, I like that. But he said, but you know what? It's the Holy Spirit that will convict people, so you need to pray for your atheist friends. So the whole, whole thing was him trying to get me to understand that what I'm doing is to get people in my pluralistic group to then come to, you know, to my God, my faith, which really was his God and his faith. 
if you think about it. Because then he did talk about like, well, hey, you guys are going to numb your mind at a concert, which is what he, he said that you're going to numb your mind. OK. And I'm like, OK, that's an interesting take. So less of that connectivity in that in that place. He says, and none of this really matters. We're, we're driving around Colorado. None of this matters. It's all beautiful. But because Jesus could come back tomorrow. And I thought, I go, wow, what two completely different experiences in the same day. Two people who are extremely rooted in their faith, different types of faith, uh, but yet both live in a pluralistic society in Denver. And so I, uh, the whole mountain thing and the different paths, I, I don't even know if that analogy would even work with, with those <laughs> well, two guys having that conversation. But, but, they, I, but I think the, the challenge then is if I'm to understand pluralism, do I allow... And I think, I think I probably identify more as a progressive Christian than anything else at this point. But I think one of the challenges I see within that tribalism is all other kinds of Christianity is okay, except for the highly conservative. That's sort of like the one that we can still make fun of. And I think that's, I think that's a shame. And I catch myself in that place still. And I think, so the challenge is, if everyone's welcome at the table, mm-hmm. is it not just, it's fighting the, the, the pride of saying, we got the super conservative and we've got the super atheistic, non-spiritual, whatever, and isn't that great? We're doing all of this as if that's, as if now we're good because we've done these other things. That's we've allowed these we people to exist. we pat ourselves on the back. Yeah. I think we're awesome. And I think, yeah. there's, I think that misses the point of pluralism because I think it still holds to some, at least inclusivism, if not outright exclusivism. Mm-hmm. What's funny about your Uber driver is that even the s- super conservative, potentially, right, he might not be, Oh, we, we talked about Trump and Hillary, and he hates Trump. That was the beauty of it. I go, whoa, you're throwing me off here. So that's yeah. the thing, that there's there's something that, like, if he came to pub theology and be willing to, and, like, just hold back and not evangelize, that would be tough he'd have him. something to bring to the table, and it would be truth. I see faith as a commitment yeah. to truth, wherever it may be and whatever it may look like. And it might look like the Uber driver who's trying to convert you, and he's, you know, willing to say that, most of us go to a concert to numb our minds. And I think there's truth in that. Yeah. Okay, so going off of the conservatism um, and and getting along with everybody, all that fun, fun stuff. So <laughs> I, I obviously disagree with all of you about religion. I, but that's, that's, I don't come here just to be a dick and fight. I, I agree with you guys all ethically, morally, and I think that you're good people. And I don't want to change your opinion. I, I'm going to be steadfast in mine, but I don't really care what you believe, whatever makes you better. Uh, with the conservatism, I think that it's a lot of times, especially in today's political climate where you have attacks, and I view them as attacks, on various minority communities, like LGBT, racial minorities even, that will, I'm going to use this as an argument, I think that it's, paradoxically, if you want to have a tolerant society, you cannot tolerate intolerance. Because, like Ryan was saying just then, the guy who was evangelizing to him, he wanted to basically sabotage the underlying foundation of this entire group by saying his goal is now to convert people like me and others. And that tears everything down. And I'm not saying that it's good that we can't tolerate that, 
but what I am saying is that we can still be, be tactful and embrace them, we just can't embrace ideas that exclude others, which I, I admit is exclusionary in itself, but it's something that, that tolerance can't exist with. Well, I think we can, we can always invite them to our table, but the reality is, is that we're never invited to their table. And that's, that's been my experience, is that I'm no longer welcome at that table. It, it doesn't matter that I want to be there and have the conversation and, and try to like work through it. I'm just not welcome anymore. Absolutely. And so they're always welcome at my table, but there's no way back in for me to have that conversation with them. John, I'm really glad you brought that up because that reminds me, um, and this is, this actually brings a really good counter-argument to the whole idea of pluralism as we've defined it so far. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> Uh, and you probably like that. <laughs> um, at least from my friends on Twitter, some of them that are at least part of the Black Lives Matter movement um, would find some of this troubling when it comes to how a white person would define pluralism or letting, could you imagine, right, a group of Black Lives Matter protesters in on a table with people that think they should be killed or etc.? There's, it's kind of like what you said, maybe some of us would draw a line there. And then the question comes, who gets to decide? And there's a power play. And there's, and that's kind of what I struggle with, if I can be frank and honest, is who decides who can be at the table? We've, we've kind of said, oh, everyone's at the table, but do we really mean that? If there's somebody who wants to kill us? Well, I know what Jesus well, would say, technically. But right? isn't that, but I think pragmatically, like, but isn't that up to you? Right, like our but who's who's you when you've got a, a table of different people? I mean, it's your 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 voice is a part of that. So, where you want to allow for those people to exist, as much as tension may be created there, right? I think that's it, it is up to us individually. I think rather than expecting someone else or or allowing blame to be put on the other people at the table because they weren't welcoming to it. Well, you have an opportunity, you have that decision point to say, I'm going to at least make my opinion known that I'm not, that if, you know, four other people at this table feel this way, I don't. And that point is the, the, the part of, ex of pluralism. And that, that's at the heart of your analogy. Like the Black Lives Matter people will sit down with them they, they would probably willingly do that, but the, the people that are discriminating against them and want to hurt them aren't probably even going to pull the chair out. And that's and that's very much experienced by many, many women in Christian traditions where they're not allowed to preach and be in leadership. I'm more than willing to come to the table, but you won't let me come to the table and you won't let me bring my Bible and you won't listen to the words I have to say because of my anatomy. And maybe I'm taking the table analogy too literally, Right, I'm thinking of an actual No, I table. think it's actually really fair. <laughs> I don't know, but um, in terms of maybe the point of, of pluralism, again, as we've defined it today, is more seeking to understand, and that doesn't necessarily have to happen at a table, right? The, the idea is to not have this caricature and stereotype of a person's view. If we, if we think that we fully understand a white supremacist view, and we're not drawing up a caricature... I guess that fulfills the purpose of pluralism. That does not mean you have to bring, literally, a white supremacist 
and someone the white supremacist would kill in a second to the same room and leave them alone or something. Right. I just kind of want to push back on that because it can be dangerous. Because then this just becomes a, another dangerous ideology in a way. This becomes like a justice <laughs> question too. And yeah. so justice is not individualistic. Sure, it's made up of individuals, but it's a, it's a communal decision. So who gets to decide in this pluralistic age that we live in? Exactly, that's what I was trying yeah, to get well, to. Yeah, so, okay. Who, we say this with laws. We say this with churches. Churches, denominations, businesses. Everybody gets to decide. But we do this, we always do this in community. I think part of the, the pluralism piece, though, is allowing ourselves to remove stereotypes. Yeah. Right, like, it's easy to assume... Right, and maybe this is, I don't know if I'm going to agree with this tomorrow, but I'll say it anyways, but maybe not all white supremacists want to kill anyone who's not white, but that's an easy place for us to go to if we want to create an other, a distinction there, and maybe part of the function of pluralism is to help us strip away those, um, those unrooted prejudices. So... I don't have to agree with somebody, but maybe I'm going to at least give a moment to say, I don't fully understand this viewpoint, so I'm going to at least try not to assume something about them. I think where relativism steps in is then when we say whatever they are, whatever everybody's doing is okay. And I think there are lines that we do have to call out, especially in kind of the cultural experience we're in right now where it needs to be said that someone's a liar or that someone is threatening someone's life or someone's being overly biased. And we need to call those out and name them from whatever our perspective is because they're wrong. And who decides that does become something that's thrown up in the air in postmodernism. But I think when we're harming another human, that that's a pretty good place to start that discussion. As much as I love postmodern philosophy, damn it! You know, it's it makes it confusing. This it is confusing. It very difficult. But this is... This is what I like about it. It's the same with pluralism, is that there's there's a complexity and there's difference, and you deal with it, because that's what real life is like. That's real life. Yeah. I don't like the homogeneous experience of... The megachurch. Or, or, <laughs> we're going to edit that out. <laughs> but I, for me, it's I'm, I'm really glad that we're discussing this topic, because this is one of the most important topics for me personally, just because... As I see how the world is changing um, with the ecological crisis, I see data that points to, you know, further globalism and immigration. And we're going to encounter, whether we like it or not, different people. How are we going to deal with it? And it could just be culturally, right? It could be the food we eat, how we dress, how we smell, all kinds of things. We've, we've really centered on religion, but I think it touches on all aspects of how we live our lives so can you guys i said guys we just did uh the unconscious bias and there's guys can you peoples wow you all <laughs> y'all i'm just gonna go back to my texas roots can y'all share one specific way in which you've changed your mind about the other recently and then we'll end there uh i i haven't fully i'm in pro in in progress but I'm, I've recognized uh, and have been aware more and more about how I've, uh, how I've othered, if we can use that word, how I've othered the, uh, the group of people who I've left in my, 
in sort of my religious journey. Um, how, and I think this is, I think it's easy for a lot of people, but for me, it's been really clear how quickly it's been for me to say, well, since I've, since that's been in my past, it must be, uh, have no value to me. So I think that's something that I continue to, to struggle with and want to continue to make room for at, at my table, whatever, wherever that is. But that person who, who I probably shared a Sunday school class with who's still there and and not be able to think of them as a less person because I've somehow, you know, transcended, transcended. Yes. I've evolved into a higher being because I no longer believe certain things. That's a, that's been a tough one for me. Crickets. I literally <laughs> crickets nailed it. <laughs> I feel like part of it is just this last several years has just been changing on everything. Especially, for me, it's been in inside the religious, you know, understanding inside the church of where those lines are and, and how they move and um, honestly trying to just eliminate the ins and the outs uh, that we, you know, not to overuse, but that we all get to come to the table. And I... I, I attended a con I go to a con congregation that is very open and affirming and I love them and I've learned so much just being present that that for Christ everyone can come just the way they are and living that out is just like you said all the rules it's all gray now there's no black and white and so figuring out how to live that out in a way that's meaningful and and brings Christ in into the world around you. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go the complete opposite way from everybody else, probably. Um, the way that I've viewed the others and how that's changed, I've really uh, struggled with wanting to believe that everyone is in some intrinsic way good and can can add value to the table, but I, I don't think that. I think that... Uh, we talked a lot about what we are, where we come from, how that all impacts us, and it's not fair, it's not necessarily moral or anything like that, but I think there's there's a lot of what I would define anyways as, as bad, um, and I don't think that there's, you know, unfortunately much of a chance of, of redemption, if you want to call it that even, uh, for people like that. I think that there's, there's an unfortunate stance that we have to take that, that I view as more pragmatic, where we have to exclude certain ideologies, certain people, certain beliefs, uh, because they're, they're, they're not compatible with anything that builds on anything else besides that one belief. And they're, they're damaging to everything else. And just, just out of protectionism and defensiveness, you have to cut that out. And whatever that looks like when you cut that out, I think that that's necessary. Um, not that I'm a fan of that idea. I don't think that's necessarily the happy ending, but I do think that's that's the pragmatic approach, and that's how my view of the other has changed. I dig it. <laughs> For me, uh, as a as a Christian, I look at Jesus, obviously, who always comes to the other. Like he actually approaches them in a way that transcends labels. We talked about labels a little bit earlier in another conversation. But he's willing to go across the lake, going uh, to places like Samaria and the Decapolis, in order to make these sort of points in this in what was becoming a pluralistic world in the first century, with Greeks and Romans and Jews. And so, for me, I mean, this the pub community is yeah. You have 
this person on the left, this person on the right, you know, we can say all the labels we have, but ultimately like this has made me hopefully a better human who is a better Christ follower because I love people because I've encountered the other. Normally in a different conventional setting uh, that I, w I used to be in, I, wouldn't ha I would not have encountered the other. But now it's, well, they're not the other anymore. Like I've, so I'm drinking a sour, for example, <laughs> right here. At one point, I would have cringed at a sour. Some people still do. Now I love the sour. So people aren't sour. They're just, a, they're, it's, it's, I do have lines, though. So you, you, could, you could push me at some point, and I'm sure, you know, if you want to hurt my child, then I won't, you know, <laughs> I won't love you. But I'll try, because Jesus, again, is saying, hey, love your enemies, right? Your enemy is the one who can actually teach you what it means to live. So to piggyback off John, what I actually like about John's story is that arguably... Because we should be surprised. We should find be able to find some redemption in John's story. Like, that's a big surprise. <laughs> no, no, no. There's no it's not that there's redemption in the story or whatever. I'm just... What I find fascinating about the story is that the only way, it seems like, the only way you could have... Um, come to that conclusion is in the encounter of whatever other you're thinking of when we're thinking of the other. Because otherwise it would have been otherwise. <laughs> otherwise it would have been a caricature and a stereotype. So in a weird way in your own way it still kind of follows some of these guidelines that we talked about. And I'm not like I could be trying really hard to find some common ground but I, I do see a lot of value in your experience and and I really like, I, I place a high value on a relationship and encounter. So even in your story, I think there's a lot of value in still going out and encountering the other. There's a mosquito in my grill, so that's the other. I want to slap that mosquito. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Dan, for writing the notes. Thank you, Stephen, Janelle, and John. It's been a fun conversation. And if you're listening right now, if you're still listening, thank you. We love you. Make sure you share this Hopalicious Brew. Follow us on the Facebook. Twitter is brew underscore theology and Instagram. And then Dan has something else he wants to add. Please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you listen to this podcast on. Five star, rock star, all that good stuff. Please and thank you. Peace. Peace. Cheers. Cheers.